0: Food Talk with Mike Calameco is brought to you by Cento at centofinefoods.com King Arthur Flower at KingArthurFlower.com, and Colavita at Colavita.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more.
1: So it's not the cymbal crash, it's it's the power chord, it's the bar chord on the guitar that I come in on. Now I know. Hey, folks, welcome. You're listening to Food Talk with Mike Colameco here, Heritage Radio Network, if you like what you hear on the network. Um, go online, give them some money. Yeah, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? They do that. They ask for donations. They live by that. It's free. There's no commercials. It's streaming radio, and it's got tons of good content. We've got a good show for you today. Got a couple of de- a couple of great guests. Last week was a fun show. It was fun to have the new executive chef at Mireya coming in. Lauren was great, and Alicia from the um, Red Gravy, Saul Balton's newest place in Brooklyn. So an all-female chef day. Today we're going old school. A couple of guys that I've known for a long time. Um, Dan Silverman will be my first guest in a few minutes. Dan was most recently at the Standard in the Meatpacking District for a good long run and is now newly ensconced as the executive chef in the swank and fancy Regency Hotel up on Park Avenue uh, that has been famous for years for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, not the least of which has been their legendary power breakfast. I've never attended those. I don't know anything about those. But it's big. It's the titans of industry. And it's the truth. It's kind of like lunch at the Four Seasons. And Michael's is kind of filling that space, too, in a a way. But, yeah, it's where the movers and shakers and deal makers of New York gather, discuss our fates and the the price of everything going forward. That's where it happens, at the Regency. But they're doing some really amazing stuff up there. So we're going to talk about what he's doing. had dinner there this week. And it was really kind of neat, kind of fun to be uptown. um, And met some familiar faces in the dining room. So we'll talk about the teams they put together because it's pretty impressive and world-class. Just this week, just filling up some time here at the beginning of the show, like I always do, talking about nonsense. It was funny. If you're in and around New York in the food world, um, the health department's become its own little entity. Back in the 80s, for those of you that weren't here, back in the 80s and even the early 90s, it was a whole different thing with the health department. It was completely corrupt. There was a time in the late 80s when the Brooklyn district attorney had subpoenas out for literally half of the health department inspectors. They got they were busted. They were on the payroll of um, of, of restaurant owners. But it was good. It was a simple system. You'd hire consultants that you would pay, and some of that money took out of the health department. And they kind of left you alone. And then this guy named Bloomberg came into office. And the health department became, like a few other things, a A source of revenue. That's how I'm looking at it. Um, Sorry, Bloomberg. But it kind of seemed that If you were in the restaurant business in the last eight or nine years in New York, it was so annoying because the Board of Health would come in like they always do. They have about 110, 112 inspectors that theoretically they do every restaurant twice a year um, or once, excuse me, once a year. And that's 18000 eateries. But they, they would just find stuff, like fines. And if you're a small restaurateur, if you're a small business guy, you know to get fined for four or $5,000, that's big money. And you could appeal some of those. Maybe you couldn't. You get away with it. You went downtown. You spent some time. Maybe you could reduce it. But it's still a lot of money, and it was a pain in the ass, and it was usually over nitpicking nonsense. Uh, so Per Se had their inspection recently, and they had a grade pending for a while, which is what they do when they're trying to figure out what they're going to give you. And then I don't think they got an A. Did you hear this, Dan?
2: I don't know if they're finished
1: yet. I thought yeah, I GOH. thought they got a
2: C or something. And I will I tell the, you. think that the point equivalent was a C, but I think that they're contesting.
1: It's ridiculous. So, it was it was kind of case in point. Now, apparently from my inside sources, Bill De Blasio is going to have a whole different take with the Board of Health. They're going to be a little less they're, they're going to act a little less like jerkoffs and hooligans shaking the restaurants down for money and a little more like what they're supposed to be doing, which is making sure that you don't die eating in restaurants. Um, but per se for those of you that don't know is arguably, and I would make the argument, having spent a good amount of time in that kitchen, during service, during mise en place, it is the cleanest, most efficiently run restaurant I've ever seen. Most Uh, organized. Organized everything. down. Thomas Keller is a rather anal chef to begin with. From the head down, that's how it works. Everything is labeled, covered, refrigerated, dated. You could eat off the floors. The the teardown they do every night, with that restaurant after service is legendary the place is spotless um, and I'm wondering if it's not that nitpicky stuff like you know here's the, according to the Board of Health in New York City salad green everything has to be kept at 38 to 42 right I mean if you eat salads that are 38 you you can't taste them if you're eating pates that's 38 you can. if you're eating exactly. cheese that's 30 exactly. if you're eating charcuterie that's the wrong temperature so you can get fined for that sort of stuff so it's really kind of Well, it's silly. And if you ever wanted a great case in point, the idea that per se got cited and scored a great equivalent for a C is hysterical. So anyway, there, done with that stuff. But maybe with de Blasio we'll see some change. Who knows? Um, I had a great meal with, with Dan at the region, we'll talk about that meal when we, when we bring Dan on here, um, had a really fun time a week ago filming, not far from Dan, Uptown, I've been Uptown a fair amount this year, a place called Rouge Tomate, which is like a Michelin starred health food joint, that's what I'm calling it, it's like really, really healthy food, their reason to be is to make super healthy food, really healthy food, low calorie food, whole grain food, in a stealth way that you don't know you're really eating healthy food, but like it is there's like an in-house dietitian that works with the chef and they've got a sommelier named Pascaline Lapoutier who's amazing Pascaline's one of my favorites and she poured for me a red from the Finger Lakes now I don't drink a lot of American wines I don't I drink mostly European wine like 99% and I'm like a red from the Finger Lakes I don't know and what it, was it it was called White Horse which was the name which is the tongue-in-cheek for Cheval Blanc because the blend was, it was like a right-bank blend so the, the blend Interesting. was Merlot and Cab Franc mostly Merlot um, but because of the elevation, it was like, I, if it was a blind tasting, no way. I would have said, I would have said Loire Valley. I mean, I probably would have guessed Cab Franc because it had that kind of vegetal green pepper right. note to it. That's what but I it would was, think. But because of the, because of the altitude up there and the short growing season it was so restrained compared to American Reds. Right. It didn't have that ripeness, didn't have the big sugar, didn't have the high alcohol. It was like this beautiful, lovely wine. And then... Just a couple days after that, I, I ate with Pascaline Wednesday night. Friday night, I was at Minetta Tavern, which is known for having, was supposedly known for having a really interesting um, and eclectic wine list. I found it really expensive. Um, it was interesting if $100 and up doesn't bother you. Uh, it bo- That bothers me. So it wasn't that great a wine list on the low end, but I, f- I found another Cab Franc from another producer, another Finger Lakes Cab Franc, that was like 68 bucks. an in order. Interesting, because
2: I know the whites, are, the whites are...
1: We know the ricelings, right. They really do rieslings and they do sparkly wines, and I had never thought... I mean, so this was... I'm like 57. I'm a million years old, and I'd never... I mean, I know they grow shitty, Like like they grow like... What's that... Concord grape, some of the red right, varietals the, the they foxy grow. grapes. Yeah, there's yeah. just those box wine, horrible, like the kind of wines you and I would never drink if our life depended on it. And I knew the Rieslings were good, and the sparkling wines were good. But the idea, so this, these one, this, this one couple, the wine that I had at, at Manetta was, I believe, organic bio, husband wife, small, small field. They run it with horses. I mean, it's like old school. Cool. Anyway, all right. So let's let's get on with the show. Enough nonsense. Let me introduce Dan Silverman. Dan, welcome. Thank you, Mike. Hey, no, no. Pleasure, man. So tell me your story. I'm always curious. We, we've we never... I think the first time we actually met on person, in person, was at the restaurant um, this past week. T- How did you get into business? Where and when and why?
2: Well, where? My first job was at Restaurant Boulay, and I opened... I started working there shortly after he opened the original place in 88, and I got that job... I think I was still in cooking school.
1: What a place to start, dude. It Talk about great. starting at the it top. Was,
2: it was great. It How'd was great. that happen? I walked in, I mean, again, you know, we were having a conversation early on at, talking about how, you know, the the job right. process in this business has changed. And back then, you walked in the back door, you walked in the kitchen door and you asked to see the chef and you presented the chef with the resume and you tried out for the job, and sometimes that was a five minute conversation, and sometimes it was a week long extravaganza. And I got put on, I worked the Amuse station for a couple of weeks until somebody, until there was a vacancy, let's put it that way. And then hot apps, and then over the course of several years, I worked pretty much every station in that kitchen and it was I'm a amazing. great experience. Yeah, that it was, was for
1: those of you that don't remember. Um, that th- it was a very different time then. We talked about how I mean, I'm, the jobs that I was getting back then. I worked for the French guys. I worked for the Four Seasons and then my next job long story short, who cares about me, but it was Four Seasons and then Delouvrier. Oh, but but that but but to get jobs then you, you would go to your chef after a couple of years and say chef I love you but I've been here I've worked every station I'm ready to move on and he would pick up the phone and call other chefs yeah. or a guy like Mark Sarazan Sr.
2: who knew yeah, all the other exactly. chefs and yeah. they
1: knew where the openings were there was no Craigslist there was no internet these jobs weren't posted in the New York Times it was total word of mouth complete word of mouth word and of
2: mouth and personal recommendation
1: and if you if you, if you fucked up you were done I mean really yeah, like, you screwed
2: somebody over done Leave
1: town, no flat Try though. Philadelphia, try Boston, reinvent yourself somewhere <laughs> else because you were you'd be banished. And so that was the time when like a restaurant opening, there would be one a year. Now the restaurant openings, oh are my like god, ten the, how a many season. a week, right? Yeah. It's like you read now you read the Wednesday Times with Fabricant saying it's like oh shit, I've got six more places to hit before the next th- Times lands on my doorstep next Wednesday. Then it was like Bernadette would open one year, Mondreche would open one year, Union Square would open one year, and then exactly. Bel yeah. was this huge opening because David had three stars with Drew Nieperant on, yeah, on Roche day. just the year before yeah. Um, Drew basically couldn't get he offered David a partnership David didn't want it Drew couldn't get the food out of the kitchen fast enough to make the kind of money that he was looking to get and he hired a new crew in stealth trained them at the River Cafe and David showed up at work one day and his shit was outside out, and Drew said out. we're done dude bye yeah. sorry you know you didn't catch the vapors I've been telling you this was going to happen <laughs> and that day they opened up with a new chef and a new menu um, crazy stuff and then as Drew, Drew and David didn't talk for years years yeah. after that Hated. Exactly. And Drew always said the best thing I ever did was can David because what did he do he opened up Boulet, which was an unbelievable restaurant I mean so you were there at a restaurant that was the restaurant of the year that, that, that opened yeah. that was just amazing mixed reviews at the beginning then they got their shit together so talk, talk about that kitchen because David like you David's a chef chef David's on that freaking line
2: I, I mean he is I, I, I tell people about that experience and it was amazing in a lot of ways but I mean the most amazing thing about it was you worked and worked and worked and you know, you all day long you ran to get your to get your stuff done, to get to be ready for service. I remember one one time, like towards the end of my my tenure there, I, I think I was the I was the AM sous chef, I was the opening sous chef and you know, trying to figure out you know, what the specials were for lunch. It was detective work. You had to, you know, you had to look in all the regions, you had to look in the walk ins, you had to read the specials list from the day before. And I remember one day, you know, thinking I'm like, okay, I'm set. I've got it all ready. And, you know, there was some Rouget dish on the on the on the specials list. And he wouldn't come in sometimes until twelve thirty, twelve forty five, and lunch starts at twelve, you know, and we'd seat the dining room. And so there was this Rouget dish I didn't I didn't know you know, I had some ideas about what it could be, and you know, he came in. He's like looking at the mail, getting ready to you know come on the line. I said, "Chef, you know, how does the Rouget go?" And he said, "Why did you get an order for one?" And I said, "No, not yet." Like he said, well, catch- "Well, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out." You know, and then he then he got dressed and he was on the line. And then the first order came in for the Rouget and he asked me for something that I didn't have on the line. He said, "Well, you're not set up. What's up with that?" Run, run, run! Okay, we're now we're ready. Okay, I need tomato yeah. water
1: now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need Something brunoise like of celery. I need right now.
2: <laughs> Something like that. That's so boulet. Yeah. He's so crazy. But I mean, that experience is just so formative and so, so amazing in that way. It was just great. It was. It was.
1: To this day, I think one of the most beautiful dining rooms I've ever sat in in New York City. Awesome, you would room. step off of Duane or whatever the street was. I remember those big oak doors that he brought in from France, and yeah. the apple there was always this pile of fruit apples yep. or something. And then you'd enter this dining room with that vaulted ceiling, very much reminiscent of like how they do coffer wine cellar ceilings. Yeah, but course. the sense of space between the tables, the the the, the floor the, this it, it was it was it was like three star Michelin. Relay and Chateau, European. Nobody was doing that standard in America then. Totally. Nobody. It was, you were in France until you walked outside again. For yeah. that, three hours hour, later. <laughs> it, it, hours because,
2: God, that kitchen was slow, dude. Well, he, we slow. made, I mean, the food, didn't, the food didn't go out until it was ready. It I was mean, insane.
1: He, I remember sitting down with my GM, I was at the Ritz-Carlton, my GM took me in, uh, we knew David, and um, I remember we ordered food, ordered wine, and we had literally finished the entire bottle of wine that we'd ordered to go with what we, we had gotten nothing, Bidami's Bouche, it was Another, an hour. another I, bottle of wine, perhaps? Oh, do, com- <laughs> yes, correct,
2: correct, correct. So that's amazing. so after boulet what? After Boulet, let me think. Long ago. <laughs> it is Br- long ago.
1: All right. Know after
2: Boulet, I think I, I, I landed at uh, Allison on Dominic Street. Where Tom there. Valenti?
1: Wait after Valenti.
2: After Valenti okay. and Scott Bryan had been before had preceded me briefly. Uh, and I was, at, uh, I was at Allison for about five years. Great spot. Uh, busy spot. Food and Wine, Best New Chef, Gourmet Magazine. Oh, good. That's huge. That's a July yeah. issue. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. That's huge. 1997. Boulet, too.
1: One last f- footprint just about Boulet because there's a lot of things I can say about David that aren't positive. But they, None of them have to do with him being a chef. They have to do with him being a businessman. Amazing chef, though. Amazing chef. A chef-chef. He was really the first American superstar before Keller, before anybody. He was the guy. Um, he had used Dieter Scherner's recipe for creme brulee to get a job working for Robichon because he'd worked with Dieter <laughs> in Vienna 79 and Dieter yes. had this great creme brulee recipe. I don't know if you remember Dieter but Dieter was one I of the, Dieter yeah. was a great pastry chef and Dieter gave David Boulay this sort of proprietary and when he went to see Robuchon Robuchon said so what do you do make something give me something and he did creme brulee I was like whoa so he worked <laughs> for Robuchon came back to the States and David blew up to the point where when, when Robuchon would come to New York he would cook with David and this was the first time Like this was the, yeah. he was, Robuchon was the hottest guy in, in the world yeah. at the time I mean Jamin uh, was three star Michelin the gold standard. Yeah. So I really think David was the first, before Keller, before anybody, that kind of was an international celebrity chef who was American-born and was recognized by the French for what he did. But yeah. anyway, that's enough with David. So let's talk about what you do in Uptown, because I could go on and on. You were at the Standard. Obviously, you got a full-on great resume. You, you. How did you hear about the job Uptown at the Regency? How did that, how did that come about?
2: Uh, a little bit old school. I am a friend of... Um, oh friend a parent of one of my daughter's friends writes for a magazine she was interviewing the the managing director at the Regency you know I, I think it was a long lead piece about the design somehow my name came up as a mutual friend and my friend my friend said oh you know I met a friend of yours who's you know now at, now at the Regency you know he said he'd you know love an opportunity to work with you again and we you know I reached out to him we had a conversation and then boom 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 a couple of weeks later I had a new job completely redid the space apparently I had ne- I had never been well there used it- to be there there was, always, was there were always there, were, there
1: was that restaurant that was famous for the breakfast because it's yes. true I mean there were God knows how many billions of dollars of deals were transacted over morning coffee at the Regency it was a scene in the same way that the Four Seasons Grill Room at Lunch is Michael's to some extent is um New York is the capital of so many things, and those people have to go somewhere. And it, it that was like the A table in your high school cafeteria <laughs> where all the cool kids sat, and you wanted in. It's got to be high school, huh? Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess. Um, <laughs> but aside, from, and, and there was Michael Feinstein's kind of cabaret thing right. in there, which was kind of cool because it was like a New York thing and right. kind of an institution. Um, so totally rebuilt. Talk about the opening because openings for no, for for those of you that have never
2: done a restaurant open don't do it.
1: <laughs> talk about it's my
2: third it. in a row. I think actually. Well, then you're getting uh, good. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why third in a row. Um, it was just um, they're. I mean, they're all they're always challenging. They're always pressure cookers. Um, this one was just you know it was challenging in different sorts of ways than other ones. Uh, you know we we needed we needed to be open. The Tishes are, you know, part owners of the Giants, so there was a big push to.
1: What don't they own? I mean, they basically own half of New York City. God bless in them. some way. God yes, bless. Yes, God them. bless them. We should have <laughs> been born into the family. You're marrying into it, but unfortunately, we use the employees' entrance. Yeah. So entrance I mean, on. so
2: so we, you know, we made that date, and you know, it was, and since since then, we've just been, you know, working on stuff and tweaking and changing stuff and trying to bring, put new things on plates, and you know, we're really getting there. Really getting there.
1: How many months ago did they open?
2: Months. We weeks? opened January 16th. That so a month. Wow, that's great. Yeah, that's huge. six now, weeks now. I talk
1: think. a bit about the team because they're not playing. I mean, they are. I mean, I, the the motivation must be to get you know shake shake the tree and get some press. Get maybe get the times in. Get Wells in. I don't know if Platts worth. To. I don't know if it's worth getting Platt in anymore because everybody seems to get two stars or less with with. Mr. Nobody impresses him anymore, guy. But the t- <laughs> the Times is still the gold standard. But so I'm sitting down at the table. Uh, you and I have never met. We get the menus. I was with my son and his girlfriend, which is kind of fun because he's it's fun going out with. Were mine. you chaperoning? I was confused by that. <laughs> no, no, I've known <laughs> they were high school sweethearts. So they've been okay. going after six. They're like an item. Six years they've been. Oh, going really? Out. Wow. Yeah, how cool is that? I know. That it's like cool. true Love or something. I don't know why she puts up with his ass, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> she's like, everything he's not. She finished college on time, is doing her graduate degree, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink, doesn't take drugs. I pulled him out of college after four years because he smoked, he drank, and he took... Yeah, you know, I was like, whatever. They are like opposites, but she's, she's great. But anyway... Um, You've on the floor. You had a sommelier, or actually, your beverage director that I recognized from years ago when he was the sommelier at Dukas, when the yeah. was behind the Essex House. R- thought he was brilliant then. He was with Leal for a while as a group overseeing everything. Right. Then he was with Benoit, where I saw him on the floor. Right. Talk about him, because I mean, you have the and the team, the, your core team, and you could you mention their names and talk about their bios, but you
2: kind of have this dynamic with pastry and you and the front of the house in right. terms of the beverage. Well, I mean, first of all, my. my my team, the guy, the guys and ladies of the kitchen, are, have been great. My chef de cuisine is this guy Rich Corbo. My executive Sue, is Brian Kevorki, and They work together at Gary Danko, together, and they just bring a, they bring a lot of great ideas to the table. Uh, my pastry chef Jeff Seitzma is great. He's you know been at Oceana. He worked with Paul LeBran for a while. Um, great sensibilities, all of them. Uh, great flavor profiles that are kind of simpatico with what interests me and just great people to work with and when you're doing an opening you're spending a lot of time a lot of time <laughs> to put it delicately together and <laughs> It's just it's nice to be able to spend that much time with a bunch of people that you can really get along with and speak the same language with. So it's very you, happy to you have, you have all. of you. Cannot
1: overemphasize that when I was at the Maurice with Christian Deluvrier, he was young and he was pretty feisty back then. And we had a consulting chef named Malin Sondrens, who was three star Michelin yeah. in Paris. He was an orchestra. And restaurant. every every three months we would change the menu entirely. And Sondrens <laughs> would fax us the new menus. And Christian and I would play with I mean, remember like ripping off pieces of paper in French. Christian would translate them, and I was getting pretty. Good at reading French recipes. Right. We would make simulacrums of the dishes, our best attempts at them, and then he would fly over. We would close for a week and work on the new menu, right. and then we'd, we would open on a Saturday night with a gala. And to your point, and, and again, to people out there listening, um, those weeks, we worked so many hours. That literally, if you were like the sous chef or the pastry chef, they'd put you upstairs in the hotel. Yeah. Because you would go to bed at 1 in the morning, and they wanted you back downstairs at 6.37, and yeah. there was just a sense of, why bother wasting an hour going home and coming back, dude? We'll just put you in a room. Exactly. Same thing with you.
2: Yes. Yes. It's un- true.
1: Un- un- it's believable true. Like, you're on your feet for 17, 18 hours. You go to bed, brush your teeth, have a beer, pass out, wake up, and put your whites on, and you're back in the saddle again. All of it true. <laughs> great business <laughs> it is a great business though <laughs> it is right? fun. We're all, we love it we wouldn't get yeah. out of it right
2: yeah it's true it's great um, so you have so a core team that you've gotten along yeah so with a great you- core team but you were talking about Andre Compare who's, who's great whose knowledge is just amazing he's got a great personality and you know he's got that he's got that training yeah. from working for uh, Ducasse for so long which is and, awesome.
1: And he thinks out of the box. It's not like, I mean, you think, I mean, sometimes there was always this fear of Psalms of, you know, always oh, going to come to the table and I'm going to tell him what I want and he's going to, you know, suggest a Pomerol no, no, 61 no. or, no. A, yeah. you know, a Cheval Blanc. No, yeah. you kind of tell him here's what I like and here's my price range. And I just remember him bringing these wines to the table. They were like, some of them I knew, some of them I didn't. Right. Even when he was at Ducasse, when we would, when I used to eat at Ducasse, it was a little table in the off the kitchen called the fish tank. Had those glass right. doors that open because I didn't like the dining room much and, uh, you know, whatever. And if you knew, if you had juice, he would put you back, and if it wasn't sold out, he'd put you in the kitchen with it. So it was like private dining in a way. And I remember him bringing one of the tasting was Him bringing like a Slovenian red. Yeah, like, he's into that. He, he, we were just talking about Slovenian, the great. Slovenian wines. It was like night. 2001, and I'm like, what? I think yeah, there's viticulture in Slovenia. I mean, this guy's big. This guy's deep. Yeah. Crazy and then what is the young lady's name who's on the floor that used to be at LTO? Whatever the one is, uh, Chantel Pabros. Totally who's cool. So amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So really good team. Great team. So I mean, obviously, you guys are swinging for the fences.
2: Knock on wood. Yeah. Okay.
1: Good. Talk about the menu a bit because it's you are uptown, so we're you know it's not a lot of dots, not a lot of foam, not a lot of stuff that I didn't recognize. On no, the plate. but I mean
2: I I wouldn't be doing that anyway. I really do kind that. of like food to <laughs> taste like food and to look like food. <laughs> not that there's anything wrong. with no, doing no. no. It, it's a personality. Several several different ways, but right. I mean, for me, there's nothing wrong with a nice plate of something. Insert a animal, fish, or vegetable here. You know, our lamb plate is you know a double cut, uh, double cut like an English chop. It's marinated with um, yogurt, herbs, some spice, and then grilled. And it gets you know gets nice and caramelized in the in the char broiler. It's just served really simply with uh, chickpea panisse and uh, mint bernes. So you know it's it's very recognizable food, but hopefully you know the products the products are sourced really well. You know, great meat and everything is cooked properly and we're respecting that and what could be what could be bad about that in fact
1: yeah the answer is nothing it's
2: quite good yeah
1: the, i mean that's i mean i've always thought that sort of my philosophy is almost like for i mean I- I shouldn't mention me and Ferdinand Point in the same sentence. But <laughs> Ferdinand Point one of those mid-century, last-century chefs in France. One of my favorite cookbooks, by the way. Absolutely. Yours, yeah. mine, and a lot of chefs I know. Yeah. And Point was sort of post-Escoffier, post-Carem. We went Carem, then Escoffier, and then Point as a giant. And Point had a little restaurant called Le Pyramide. He was famous for the copious amounts of champagne he would drink during the day. Yeah, But he was such a chef-chef, and he, he is really the beginning of the modern chef in The fact that he. Sourcing locally. Sourcing locally. Buy the best ingredients. Don't get in the way. Simplifying things. He sort of really pared down Escoffier's technical prowess it wasn't required yeah. in his mind and also even for people like us breaking that door between the customer and the chef Ascoffio wasn't in the dining room ever chefs were not allowed to wear whites outside they came in the back employees entrance suited up stayed there changed and went home and Poin was really the first guy almost I mean your guy Boulay who would have the beautiful chef's whites with a tie underneath it and a button down that was Poin he was the first guy to break that door too so he wasn't just a, he, he was a chef that was a patron but it was something that had hadn't happened before and all the nouvelle guys worked in that kitchen i think yeah. 12 or 13 the guys that would go on to become the next generation stars yeah did their piece true. there so i'm with you i mean in terms of that philosophy and i mean talk about sourcing ingredients now in new york too because it's gotten it's so much better than when i was a young chef in this city and and even when you started in the 80s yeah no
2: that, i mean that's true i think that you know a lot of things have changed it all I mean, I think that, you know, the internet, at least in this case, is a force for good because all the information is out there. You know, if you, you know, you want to find an ingredient or you want to read about an ingredient, you know, the world's at your fingertips. Um, As far as the sourcing goes, I think that, you know, there there are a bunch of purveyors that have been in business for a long time that do really great stuff and... You know, we use you know we use Pat LaFreda for meat. It's you know, got that Creekstone man. I had that. LaFreda, de Braga.
1: Yeah, they're great. They're thing, rivalry, but, but it's okay. You know, it's they're all both right. they're both they're both great. Both great, yeah,
2: they're both great. Um, you know, so it's just it's just a it's just a function of developing those relate. Really, you know, fi- finding those people, developing relationships with them, cultivating that relationship. Uh, you know, I love to get on the phone and talk to Mark or to Pat Junior and their brains it's yeah. it's so interesting to talk to you know people on in that end of the business about our end of the business because you know you school them and at the same time they school you which is always a great conversation to have
1: yeah yeah
2: and fish are using lou Razo, among others i'm not using lewis right now i use uh peerless yeah brought bobby damasco yeah great guy yeah yeah I've known him for a long time as well. <laughs> he's fine, and his wife's a great pastry chef.
1: Yes, Karen is super Karen, talented. Great, great talented pastry yeah. chef. They're a great story. He's 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 crazy. I love him. But yeah. but even I mean, it, the butter you can get, the bread that you. Get, I mean, the truth is in America now, the ingredients are just so much better than they were fifteen twenty years ago. Yeah, I the I mean, farmers, I think, the small farmers, the the little boutique vegetable. I mean, do you. It's basically. The crayon box we can play with now is so much more interesting than the one we. were <laughs> So stuck we have with.
2: 128 colors instead of 64 or 32 or whatever, or eight, uh, Yeah, or eight, <laughs> and a lot of brown. Primaries, yeah, and white. <laughs> yeah,
1: no, it's great. So, super, super, and the tissues must be behind this. I mean, obviously they've invested. A ton yeah, they're they want-
2: great. They're 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 a pleasure to work with. John's, you know, John is in charge of the hotels, and he's he's just been a great a great guy to collaborate with. How many women are in your kitchen? A fair amount now. Women, women
1: chefs. Yeah, actually. I'm curious about this. I've been, I'm been I'm I'm seeing more and more women
2: on the you know in kitchens that I go on. You I know like
1: the FCI is like half women in terms of enrollment. Four
2: sous chefs. One's a woman. Uh, let's see. Lunch. I have two, three on the line. Yeah. Okay. It's
1: good. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, There's it's really... It's tough. I mean, I started, I devoted last week's program to talk to...
2: I mean, Lauren, who just got promoted to Chef de Cuisine from Marais, which is great. Three stars. I mean, my experience is that they're some of the best cooks. Good. You there know, we go. They, okay. They try harder because they feel like they have to, and I don't... You know, I'm not sure. They're just... Good.
1: They're good just news. solid. What's your advice, young chefs coming up? Because one of the things I... Our industry's changed. It's gotten more popular. I mean, thank God I can actually make a living doing something like TV and radio and <laughs> writing, which is such horseshit. When I started, if you dreamed big, it was I want to be a chef. I want to right. own my own restaurant. Maybe you know that was it. That was that was it. That was the that was about as far as anybody was gonna, was ever going to go. Uh, but, but having said that, I think a lot of kids getting in this industry now. You know, they watch Top Chef or they watch Chopped, and it looks cool. Do it because you love it.
2: Don't do it because you think it looks cool. Yeah, and. Because it ready looks cool on, on, on the outside, but it's, you know, it depends on, depends on your perspective. But, I mean, for me, I always, I always tell people that cooking is just managing an endless flow of mistakes. <laughs> you know, you, you fuck something up, you have, to, you have to, A, you have to admit that you made the mistake. You have to, you know, you have to figure out what you did wrong and then move on and yeah. you, you make other mistakes. You no know, ones. it's like I, I, I always say, or you know, like you use the the Fernand Puan. I think he used to have he used to have people cook an omelet for him. That was that was how you auditioned. And you know, I always say to I always say to cooks, I said I can show you how to make an omelet. And if you make it my way fifteen times perfectly, you still don't know how to make it because you've never fucked it up. You know, and, and it, it's in those mistakes that you actually learn how to cook, and you learn that the products are you know they're this the product is the same every day. An egg is an egg. But, you know, depending on what time of year or what kind of chicken it comes from or what that chicken was eating or being fed determines the quality of the egg, determines the moisture content, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you learn by repetition. You know, you really do
1: funny i remember the old days when i think it's less of a position now than it used to be because cooking has changed so much but we used to dream about being the chef in a restaurant back in the 80s because that was the 90s because it was you were the guy that made every yeah. so you came in in the morning and it was reductions and bones and hollandaise and Bernays bones and breaking and them, and yeah. them and fixing them and back to your comment of eggs it's just you know depending on the day the temperature where the room was the butter yeah, exactly. if you were in a hurry i mean you know how many times did we bring back broken hollandaise and Bernays yeah. in the middle of service Yeah, it's funny. Completely. (laughs) Dan, it's been great to have you. Dan Silverman's the chef at the. Re- Regency Barn Grill. Regency Bar and Grill. Six- Lowe's Regency Hotel. Lowe's Regency Hotel, 64th and Park 61st and 61st, Park, Sixty first, excuse sorry, me. Mike. Sorry, the subway sixty third, that's how <laughs> I know stuff. The F train stops up there. That's that's how I roll. No, great restaurant, really beautiful. Keep an eye on them. They've got a great staff in the kitchen. He's brought his core A team with them And I really liked what I saw on the front of the house. Great wine program, great psalm on the floor, great beverage director. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And, no continued success. Nice to chat. Great yeah, it was great. You. Folks, you're listening to Michael Lameco's Food Talk here on Heritage Radio Network. We're going to take a quick spot to give a shout-out to some of the people that helped make my program and some of the others here possible. And I'll be back in a couple of minutes with another seasoned New York vet, Chef Shane McBride, who is the executive chef for Keith McNally, who oversees uh, specifically Balthazar, Pastis up until recently, Um Minetta, uh the soon-to-open Cherche Midi, and Schiller's down in my neighborhood. Shane and I will talk about what it's like to run that beast right after this. Hey, folks, Mike Lameco here. Any good chef will be honest with you and tell you about 80% of good results from cooking is good shopping. You have to start with great ingredients. So when I'm looking to make a canned tomato sauce at home, I use Cento San Marzano tomatoes, which I've loved using for years. When I had my restaurant, that's what I bought. When I was a chef at restaurants and I could supervise the purchasing, that's what I ordered. They're great. I actually had a chance a few years back to go visit the area where they're from because I'm always curious with ingredients. What is the provenance? So we flew in in the middle of August to this little region just in the shadows of uh, Mount Vesuvius where there's great volcanic soil. And what I found out was these tomatoes come from lots of small family farms, little quarter and half acre plots where that's what they do. They raise tomatoes and sell it to the Cento factory that packs this tomato in the peak of the season in the middle of the summer. Cento nourishes the San Marzano tomatoes from start to finish with a 100% certified traceability program. Cento San Marzano certification is the only one of its kind assuring the consumer of authentic San Marzano tomatoes. So if you're looking for great canned tomatoes for great tomato sauce, look no further than Cento brand San Marzano. My calamaco here. Uh, when I started my PBS show, one of the deals with producing a PBS show is you're always looking for underwriters and I thought let me let me Start first by going after people whose products I actually use in my kitchen. Um, I had a restaurant for years. I used Colaviate olive oil. I did some research and found out that in the extra virgin category, it was the only Italian olive oil that was actually 100% Italian origin. There's a lot of stuff going on in that business that we don't really want to talk about. But um, a lot of the big brands call themselves Italian, have American Italian flags on the labels, and they blends from tank farms from all over the planet. Pretty much based on price. Uh, Colavita is the exception. Um, really love the oil. Been using it in my house. Used it in my restaurant. Well, Colavita is doing something neat. They're doing a contest. If you go to ItalyContest.com or Colavita.com, where there's a link. But again, Italy Contest is the more direct way to do it. They're doing a contest on substituting butter for olive oil and baking goods. The winning recipe gets a free trip to Italy, courtesy of Colavita. So if you're thinking about cooking with olive oil and you're a baker... Throw him your recipe at italycontest.com or visit colavita.com and click the link there. You may win a trip to Italy.
0: King Arthur Flour, established in 1790, is America's oldest flour company. They're an employee-owned company whose passion is sharing the joy of baking and inspiring bakers worldwide. When King Arthur was founded in 1790, George Washington was the newly elected president of the United States. The company was sold by the Sands family to King Arthur Flower employees in 1996. They are now an ESOP company, 100% employee owned, with a 100% commitment to quality. Visit them at kingarthurflour.com.
1: <laughs> hey, folks, welcome back. There was a moment of silence there. You know why there was a moment of silence? Because you're, you're, we're at Roberta's, and this is the Church of Brooklyn. And we, we bowed our heads for a moment here in the, in the pews of the Church of Brooklyn. All things great in the culinary world. We just, but yeah, a moment of silence here, here at the church. Okay, but we're back now. My guest is Shane McBride. He's in the studio, and he, you know what? He's a chef. He brought me a bottle of wine, a corbiere, a wine that I love from the Sud de France, Kind of like Minervois, same sorts of wines in a way. All right, so that was the sound of the corkscrew. Look at that color; it's a gorgeous wine. We'll get Shane on microphone in a minute, but not before I take a sip of this wine. I'm going to talk about again. These are sort of mm, God. That smells good. Thank you so much. Toast. So, so last week again, we were celebrating some bright young women in the industry. Lauren Destano, who was the chef de cuisine at, is the chef de cuisine now at Maria, which is great. Uh, she was tough as nails. She was a great interview. And Aisha, who has now the chef de cuisine at um Red Gravy, which is Saul Balton's homage to Southern Italian cooking in Brooklyn. I remember her when she worked with Missy Robbins, who's another great, great woman in the industry. Uh, at Avoce, Aisha's cool. She was great. The interviews were great. Today, we're kind of switching gears and getting some grizzled guys that have been in this business almost, almost as long as I have. Uh, to that end, we had Dan Silverman earlier, who, who started out amazingly with David Boulay in one of the greatest kitchens ever to grace New York City back when he opened in 87, 88. Um, and is now the executive chef at the Regency. And Shane McBride, who I first met, I don't know, 12 or 13 years ago when he was one of the line cooks or sous chefs of Christian Delouvrier's Les one of the greatest restaurants to ever exist in New York. Shane, welcome, man.
3: Thanks for having me, man.
1: Great to have you on. Great to have you on. Thanks for the wine. Um, So talk a bit about, you know, I ask everybody this, but I love the stories and I love narratives. What got you into this business in the first place? I'm just always curious what drove people in here.
3: Uh... Well, for me, mm. it was uh,
1: sustenance.
3: <laughs> My mom, I had a single mom who was uh, building her business kind of from the ground up, and uh, she was a, a, just an awful cook. <laughs> and so was know, mine. <laughs> she had a repertoire of like maybe five things, you know, meatloaf, uh, beef stroganoff, stuffed peppers and, uh, like, chicken cordon bleu. And they all sucked. <laughs> and you can only eat those those things so many times. So, as soon, And I, my grandmother's a fantastic southern cook, and my uncle was a chef. So I had them to lean on, so I would watch them and, and learn from them, you know, that, like fried chicken from my grandmother and shit like that. But that, that was it. It was just so I could eat. So as soon as I could reach the top of the stove, I was cooking for myself. That's funny. And I kind of grew. It's funny, you know. I kind of grew up. I was a little bit of a party boy in high school. You know, I played football and all that shit. And I used to have big parties at my parents' house. My mom's company, you know, got her away from the house a lot. So I would have parties where we would have 10 kegs over the course of the weekend. And I made money doing it. And somebody asked me just recently, you know, how would you really get into this? I'm like, you remember the parties I threw in high school where we would have barbecue and sell the red cup for three bucks? I'm like, I replaced it with crystal glass and a real plate. (laughs) <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm right. still doing the same thing, <laughs> and, and I still love doing it. So that's hysterical. Yeah. Cooking school at some point or no? Yeah, I went to CIA.
1: You did? Yeah. Okay, okay. Graduate when? I graduated in '97. Mm. Where were you before I met you at Les Benos?
3: Uh I worked for Charlie Palmer at R. Real. Yeah,
1: great. You know, it's funny. We were just talking about David Boulay. Charlie is of that generation of, like, the really the, the first star American chefs. Yeah, those,
3: um, I mean, H- uh, Boulet and Charlie worked for Rachoux.
1: Correct. And yeah. Jean-Jacques Rachu, again, for those of you who don't know, a while back, I was uh, w- was really honored and, and ha- to have the privilege. Jean-Jacques Rachu was a French immigrant to the United States who, uh, who was an orphan in France. He was orphan. I mean, he was adopted by people who basically treated him like an in-house slave. He slept in the barn, took care of animals. His life was miserable. At 12, he got a job in a a hotel. He remembers the date. It was September 18th, 1940-something. It was the greatest thing that ever happened to him. Worked his way up, came to New York, La Vendue, and then La Côte Basque, which really, they have their roots going back to the pavillon of that generation. Um, He was so cool because... If you wanted to work at Lutest then or any of the French restaurants, they would not hire Americans. Wouldn't hire Americans. You could come in the summer and replace somebody while they were off, but you couldn't get a job permanently. He was the first guy to hire them. First guy. They threw him out of the Vitell Club. So anyway, I mean, I, I adore Jacques Jacques Rachieu. And yes, Charlie Palmer, Rick Moon, and yep. Frankie Crispo. I could go on. Dozens of of, the, of that generation of chefs came out of, out of uh, Coat. Yeah. David Burke. David Burke yeah. out of that kitchen. And then David Burke replaced... Um, Charlie River Café Which yeah, was yeah. huge well, I yeah. mean that's what Charlie's stepping out party He met Steve Zolos And then opened up uptown And yeah. the rest is history And David won the, uh, uh, That great French award I the only American To get that right
3: MOF yeah. MOF yeah, yeah. Um, Milieuuvier de France Milieu de France yeah. Amazing David yeah.
1: Brooks is a serious chef yes. If you can just peel back The alcohol and drugs um, ah, but th- uh, that- He said that I didn't say that <laughs> That's true With a lot of chefs <laughs> Most of us have CD pasts Yeah that's true So you worked with Oriel And then with Christian yeah, before Ariel, I
3: worked in South Florida, Four Seasons, and a couple of places down there.
1: So let's talk about what you doing day-to-day, because we can go on and on about history. But it, 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 you got the job a while back, working with um, our team that had been ensconced there, Riyadh. Yeah. Um, what's the other cat's name? Lee. Lee. Yeah. Lee. Lee Hanson. Awesome guys. Awesome guys. Yeah. Totally chef-chefs. Absolutely. Um, for those of you that – I mean, Keith McNally is one of the most – successful restaurateurs ever to grace the earth. He opened Odeon years ago uh, with his first wife and his brother. Then they opened Café Luxembourg, and it's been one after another string of successes. Yep. They kind of parted ways. He's a marriage or so later. Um, Keith still runs some of the best, most popular, and most profitable restaurants in the city. Balthazar, Pastis, um, Minetta Tavern now for the last five years, Schiller's down in my neighborhood, and the soon-to-open uh, Cherche Midi, which is a re- redo of Polino's, Let's just talk about Balthazar a bit, for the beast it is. Okay. Um, there was a New York Times piece I read a couple of months ago. Great piece. Don't know who the writer was. Wasn't Jeff Gordonier, wasn't the usual suspects. But some kid. Talk about that, that kid, what he did, and what he captured. Because I thought he really got the zeitgeist of what a restaurant like Balthazar is like as a machine. He did. He, he came in. Uh, his
3: name is Willie. Okay. I can't think of his last name, but uh, he came in and he spent literally 22 hours in the restaurant straight. He came in at like, he got there like four in the morning. Uh, Aaron, who you met, the general manager, met him there. And he saw the porters cleaning. And then he saw the trucks coming up. You know, like we, we don't get the little delivery trucks, we get the big ass, full so ass, nice. big fucking trucks pull up to us. So he saw that. They videotaped like, you know, the 25, 60 cases of potatoes coming off, you know, for, per service. And he really just kind of watched the whole thing. And he had worked as a server in a restaurant, so he had a perspective of what, what it is, the day-to-day, and he really took it from that, I think. You know He watched how the guys do stuff, and he talked to the guys, and, and he really just watched. And, and he translated it. You know, it was like, I think it, it could be, you can, you know, it's a big comparison, but like compare what he wrote to like George Orwell, you know, Down and Out, Paris, London, where the guy was kind of like there. He was entrenched and watched it. And it was very cool to see him go through it. And then the other interesting part of it was the photographer did the same thing. He came in for 22 hours and took pictures. He must have taken thousands of pictures. I can only imagine how many pictures there were.
1: These days with digital media, that's exactly
3: what Yeah, I mean thousands of them. And there were some great pictures. There's uh, the There was the article in the magazine, but there was a, a really cool like uh, expose on the, on the internet where they did like the day in the life of a steak frites and they showed you know the big giant cases of the Creekstone meat coming in and the butchers taking it down and you know butchering it pounding it out the, the, the couple of guys that peel potatoes all day long and then punch them out for the fries and then the, the fry process you know they put one of those go cameras on one of the guys and right, they go followed him all day peeling potatoes, punching them out it was great yeah, it is. It really piece. captured. I
1: really like it yeah. when people because so much of food writing, in my opinion, is just like horseshit from people who have never spent a day in the industry, I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, uh, just, it might be good writing, but it's not. It's informed. This was actually this was peeling the layers of the onion and showing you what was back there. You know,
3: and and to to be uh, I hate to be a little negative, but there was a lots of on the Times website there was lots of negative comments comments about how. You know, the article talked about how guys have been there peeling potatoes for so long and how that's like, you know, slavery. And, you know, these guys, this is what they want to do. It's a restaurant business, dude. They oh, have been offered on. time and time again to be, you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? They want to just come in, do their job, they take their money back to whatever country they're from. And ten years from now, they're going to retire and live like kings.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. Course, and I hate it.
3: I hate to be that way. But I didn't that's...
1: read the comment thing. I usually okay. avoid that because it's sort of like Yelp. I mean, once you give people, a, you know, you give any jerk off a computer an access to <laughs> make a comment, and what you have is a lot of jerk off opinions.
3: Uh, there's a great a great friend of mine who's a manager at the, at the Met dining room. Uh, he says, you know, in the 60s and 70s, they were called crackpots. And now they're called bloggers.
1: (laughs) I don't want to shit on all of them, but, man, (laughs) I'll tell you what. It's it's a sad sort of um, truth to a lot of what passes for journalism in that whole blogosphere and Yelposphere thing. But you're right. Keith McNally has had employees that have worked for him. Bus Forever. boys that have worked for him since Odion that own buildings in Chinatown. That is correct. Corre- and a fact, I mean, could retire tomorrow on their on what they love working for Keith. They yeah. love the restaurant business. Yeah. They love the repetition of it. They love the daily routine of it. This is what they do. And I think nobody embodies that. I mean, so I had the, the pleasure. I mean, thank, we, we did a piece on you. It's going to air in a couple of weeks. We did a piece on Minetta and on on Balthazar for my PBS series that airs Sundays at three thirty here, um, on channel thirteen and. Uh, we got to do, we got to, we had, I had dinner at Balthazar ahead of the shoot and it just, it captured, uh, talk about the place a bit, but it's, it's, there's something wonderful about those rooms. Yeah. The volume level is perfect. Yeah. There is just a buzz. And I, I've eaten at all of the great French brasseries that you could think of, from Flo to Pic to you know, Julien, you name it. I mean, I'd, when I was in the 80s, that's all we did was go to Europe, go to France in the summers on our days off, or no, excuse me, our weeks off, and, and eat at those restaurants yeah. to get that sense of what it was about. But the feeling wasn't something you could transfer. Balthazar is like you're stepping off of whatever the street is, Prince or Spring, and you're stepping into some 15th Avenue Small in Paris. Absolutely. You know, the lighting in there is
3: is always perfect. Uh, who was it? Ryan Sutton said something, thank God, for
1: Keith McNally's lighting. You know, he makes everyone look good.
3: But I, you, can't, you can't put
1: it better than that. And the staff are great. I mean, yes. seasoned, the men and women that work on the floor have raised families, put kids through college with the proceeds. It's one of the busiest restaurants in New York City. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, you know, you
3: saw there's... a uh, a prep guy whose two three kids work there. Right. You know, the, the, there's a, a busboy whose daughter is a a, you know, a, wait, a waiter there. You know? so 300
1: plus employees. 350, yeah. 350 employees. Yeah. A restaurant that doesn't stop. On a busy day, Balthazar does 14, 15, 16, 17, 1800 covers, which is insane. Consistently good food. We observe lunch service, dinner service. I was at Mineta the other night with my son for dinner before a concert at the Blue Note. Uh, and of course, that place. Fills up early. We had a six o'clock res. The place was basically packed at six o'clock, and by the time we were leaving at seven quarters eight to catch a concert, it was a little it's hard to walk out of there. Hard to walk out, three deep <laughs> at the bar. But the buzz of the place meant great. you don't want to leave. No. It's like a drug. Yeah, it's just exceptional. Yeah, Keith he, gets it.
3: Keith has it. You know, he's he's got. You know, I was lucky to do the project in London with him. That's right. You all opened Balthazar London, That's a- yeah. right? Yeah, and I got to watch him. You know, for lack of a better word, nitpick and and redesign and rethink everything, everything like the sign that went to the toilet. You know, he changed it twice. You know, because <laughs> he, he, he didn't like way. he didn't like the way it looked, and yeah. he he didn't think that people would like to read the like you know here in New York it says toilets, but over there it says uh, uh, something else. I can't think of what it says, but it's a French know. word for toilets. Right, uh, but. Anyways, you know, it's like it took him a week to decide on that. He still is, to this day, deciding which shades he likes better. Which color? There's two different colors. <laughs> and I've been over there several times, and every time I go over there, they're different. And he's like, I'm not sure yet. I'm still thinking about it.
1: He's, I, you know, there's. Um, yeah, he, you name the most successful restaurateur, restaurateurs in New York in the last thirty years, and of course the, the names that come to mind quickly are the guys that get the most press—guys like Danny Meyer, Drew Nieperant, Steve Hansen, to a late, way lesser extent, qualitative-wise, and Chattero, just for numbers purely. But in that list of the top guys, like Drew and like Danny, Keith's there. Oh, I mean, I just think he's just no one, and and been uh, you know, I think every everybody probably envies him because in terms of profitability, he's actually ahead of them. He's probably yeah. He's fucking smart. Yeah, he's no, he's freaking it. smart. He's got yeah. it figured out. He does. Talk about the new place if you don't mind. I am not so big on you know, I'll leave that to the eaters of the world and the bloggers of the world. I don't I, I tend to give restaurants 6 months to a year after they open before I even try them because it's it there's a settling in period that has to happen but so Polino's on Houston is now shuttered it's going to reopen as Cherche Midi. right now it's a construction site if as much as you want to reveal about who's going to be involved who's going to be doing the cooking talk to us about that but I'd like to know about the food because each Balthazar is kind of like the brasserie it's big it's voluminous it's not inexpensive but it's not expensive it does breakfast lunch and dinner seven days a week never closes it feeds downtown Manhattan and Soho um, is a little more precious and... is a little more expensive A little more elevated um, The menus it, it, It's not an inexpensive place to dine It's fabulous Incredible burger Incredible meat Um and really interesting dishes. I mean, I had the pied-de-cochon, because, man, I ain't making that at home. And you know what? I would go back and have that once that's, a week. It's awesome. Insane. So it I, wouldn't kill you if you ate it once a week? That's, it would kill me. Yeah. Um, so I'm not eating it once a week. Um, and then you, Schiller's on my end of town is like a bit of a down market, because it's Lower East Side. Yeah. It cannot be Manetta. It's not trying to be Manetta. It's beautiful. It's cool. You oversee that menu. Same menu almost all day long. Yeah. Um, so what are we looking at for share-sharing? each of these products is a little bit different.
3: Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny that you ask, because I just had lunch at La Grenouille. No. Uh, How was it, by the way? It was awesome. Was it? Yeah. I uh, was with the, uh, the two, the pastry chef and the, the chef de cuisine. Uh, Laura Wurtz is going to be the pastry chef. She's the pastry chef at, at Mirandi right now, and uh, she was the pastry chef at Polino's as well. And then uh, Daniel Perillo, or Chino, as everybody calls him. He's going to be chef de cuisine. Um, he is the executive sous chef at Mineta
1: Tavern. He's been there since it opened. Great guy. Slick back hair, ponytail, yeah,
3: tattoo major day, tattoos
1: on his neck. I mean, I lives in the village. I oh, used to see him all the time walking yeah. around in the West Village. Been
3: around forever. worked for, he worked at Boulevard. He worked at Boulay. He worked for Josh Tichelis. He worked for Zach Palacio. You know, he was the chef of Five Ninth. You know, he's been around. Awesome guy. Incredible cook, very talented. Can't I? Can't wait to work with him. So every Chino, day.
1: it's official. Chino's going to be the chef. Chino's it, yeah. Okay. Chino's it. Okay.
3: Um. And the food, you know, we've we've been we've been very fortunate to taste it a lot. We've been doing a lot of things, and we're going back towards classics. You know, we're going to try to do. You know, that's kind of why we went to Grand Wee today. Was just a, we're trying to dip our toes back into that classic thing and make it where. People will enjoy it again, because you know Dan alluded to it. Where the, and you said it. You know, there's no dots and there's no foams and things like that. You know, we're gonna do simple stuff. Palm souffle. You know, we talked about this. Yeah. You know, uh, palm <laughs> souffle is something that is it's laborious,
1: pain in the ass, dude. Yeah.
3: And we're gonna do it. You know,
1: yeah. Almost fifty-fifty success to failure rate. Yeah. Why they don't? I mean, I've never figured out why. I'll never forget one I was lucky enough to my I was lucky enough. My kids were lucky enough. When they were little and Jacques Reshew was still at the Coat Basque, I took my family to the Coat Basque, wife and kids, and Jacques came out to the table with a couple of the courses himself. Yeah. And one of them was Pom Souffle. My kids yeah. had never seen them in a napkin, presented the way you would open up that folded napkin, and in it was like twenty, twenty two of these beautiful globes of yeah, awesome. potato ping pong balls, man. They're Insane. Awesome. They're, They're awesome. so good. I've been I've
3: been playing around with those, you know, like Blanching different ways and freezing them, and trying to just get it down, so that you know those are the kind of things that we're working on. That we're working with uh, Pat LaFreda on, on a dry age program. You know, we're, we got a burger. You know, it's Keith. We have to have a burger. Um, classic stuff, consommé, things like that. We're just going to try to bring food. And and one of Keith's formulas is there's a little something for everybody. And that's where we're going. It's going to be a small menu, like Manetta. You know, I, I think I said you know it's a feminine version of Manetta Tavern.
1: You had mentioned that, and I don't. Want, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Still that way, so maybe a little more in the, on the on the vegetable salad
0: yeah, yeah, fish yeah. side.
3: Yes, there's definitely some meats. There's stuff for the boys, but there's definitely some great salads, lots of vegetables. You know, that on the opposite flip side of Manetta. You know, uh, and it's just going to be emphasis on the ingredients. That's, that's uh, you know, if there's one thing that, that I brought into Balthazar was, you know, kind of paying attention to what we were buying. I work every day with our purchaser. I talk to him all the time. You know, and it's, I'm always trying to get something a little bit better for us. You know, it, we're, not, we're not cheap. You know, that's, it's hard to do a restaurant for cheap these days. Grenouille was expensive. You know, it was expensive. Yeah. When you're paying union waiters, you've got to kick up the price. But we're looking for... You know, just doing nice, really nice, simple stuff. That's kind of the... The goal.
1: Well, that's what Keith's always done. I mean, yes. if you think, of even going back to Odeon Days with Patrick Clark in the kitchen, uh, both were opened in the late '90s. Pastis after that, but it was not to reinvent anything. It was nope. to just go back to that huge. I mean, I have still have, and you and I talk about. We collect cookbooks. Yeah. Oh, it's funny. My copy of uh, Lunch at Pavillon is a first edition too, or Dinner at Pavillon, awesome, first edition. I don't months. have. I don't have the dust cover, uh, but it's first less. edition. A little less. No, but it's still. They're going for like five, six hundred. It's crazy. Yeah. So you and I still collect. We're geeks. We've got old French cookbooks. And if you go, I mean. A double consommé, a chilled consommé in the summer. Is there anything better? I mean, on a cold winter night, a double consommé with dumplings floating in it. Uh, in the summer, a chilled lobster consommé, a chilled chicken consommé with brunoise. I mean, it's like this is perfect food. Yeah. It, it never goes out of style.
3: Exactly. That's that's the thing. It's like you know, it's it's like uh, a nice pair of loafers. They never go out of style. Yeah. It's the same thing. We're, we're gonna we're just gonna do food that is executed as, as perfectly as we can do it using the best ingredients we can get our hands on, and going back and bringing some classics back. That's really the focus.
1: Well, you know, Polina was the only place Keith opened, that opened and closed in, in, in a shorter period of time than one would have expected, for a whole bunch of different reasons, I'm sure. I don't know, and I'm not going to opine on that. Um, but I suspect Shusher is going to be a sticker, because everything he's done, I mean, Pastis just closed the other night, you know, got a lot of press, everyone's going to miss it, there's talk of reinventing it, I'm sure he's talking to landlords about finding a space.
3: That's uh, already, that's already in motion.
1: Good. So, Keith's got it. Oh, yeah. Good
3: for you. And your day is six days a week? What's that? Your six days a week? Me? Yeah. This
1: week I am. Seven days a week. <laughs> <laughs> when is the going to open? What are we looking at? What do we think? Uh, hopefully end of April, beginning of May. Okay. Yeah. All right. So before I disappear for Cape May for my July and August. Yeah, um, we're
3: hoping to be end of spring. Okay. That's our, our uh, knock on wood. I look
1: forward to it. Chino's a great guy. I'm, you know, I yeah, love his food at Manetta. He's solid. I'm sure we get the A-team in there. Yeah. Shane, thanks so much for coming in, man. Yeah. Shane McBride, I wish we had another half an hour to wax poetically. I'll get him back, maybe, as she Shay's getting ready to go in the menu set. We can talk about the menu specifically. Um, I'm the host, Mike Colomeco. You've been listening to Mike Colomeco's Food Talk. My guests were Dan Silverman, the chef uptown at the Regency Bar and Grill, and Shane McBride, who oversees an enormous swath of restaurant real estate these days. With restaurants like Mineta Tavern, Balthazar, Schiller's, and the soon-to-open Cherche Midi down on Houston Street by the Bowery. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks there. for having me, man. Pleasure. And thanks for the wine. Tell me about this wine. Where'd you... I mean, this is a delicious. I got
3: it right around the corner.
1: This guy? Yeah. That store? Right there. I... So I picked up two bottles of wine tonight because I'm having dinner. But I'm... I love Thursday nights. So I'm going to chill. I'm going to take a pizza home, watch some basketball tonight, smoke a cigar in my apartment. Guy's night out, man. Just me. Yeah. Um... Great selection. This one called my name. I'm like, that's perfect for the weather right there. Perfect. Cobiel, thanks so much. We can congratulate you when I see him on the way out. Again, Shane McBride, chef at Mineta Tavern. Soon to open. Share Shane Medie, Check it out when it happens. If you haven't been to Mineta or Balthazar, I'm saving you a round-trip ticket to Paris because it's pretty hard to find any experience like that in New York, that authentic. Um, Great places. And congratulations on your success. Thank you, man. All right, see you next week, folks. Who's my you know what I'm going to promo next week's show? I wrote it down. I do this every week and I fuck it up. So hold on, hold on. I'm going to tell you who are my guests next week because I never remember. Oh yeah, I've got Ben Hirschberger, who was the head baker for Per Se for many, many years. He was a pastry chef, baker in charge of the bread program. He's now at Hot Bread Kitchen, which is an amazing story up in Harlem. He's going to talk about hot bread. Hot bread's cool as shit. Cool as shit. I want to get Jessamine in here, but she was away that day. And then I've got another New York vet coming in, Bill Telepan. So next week, Ben Hershberger is going to talk hot bread kitchen, Bill Telepan, about his restaurant Uptown and his new one, Telepan Local. That's next week. Hey, see you then, folks. Be well, eat well often.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.